Services offered by clinics, hospitals, and health systems tend to be built around the concept of a typical patient. Actual patients, however, often come from social worlds that are far from the ones envisioned by healthcare systems, and in those cases, the services provided can be ineffective or even harmful. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Laszlo Madaris, Chief Medical Officer of the Migrant Clinicians Network and a Clinical Assistant Professor at Penn State College of Medicine. As part of the journal's Case Studies in Social Medicine series, Dr. Madaris has co-authored a perspective article about social distance and mobility and their effect on patient care. Dr. Madaris, can you explain what you and your colleagues mean by the term social distance and perhaps give us a couple of examples? Sure. Let's start with a typical clinician. You may imagine that after he or she explains the need to treat diabetes, that a patient would comply. If the patient does not, the clinician may assume that, one, a more clearly directed conversation needs to happen, or two, perhaps better language interpretation is needed, or perhaps further emphasis on future diabetic nephropathy, neuropathy, and retinopathy would occur as a consequence of diabetic noncompliance. If the patient in front of him may be a farm worker with limited transportation to go to a pharmacy or um, no time off for medications and fear for retaliation if identified as a sick worker. He may have food insecurities and cannot easily comply with the clinic dietitian who recommends a nutritious diabetic diet. The patient may understand everything being discussed but cannot be compliant. There is a gap. This gap is what we talk about when we discuss social distance. As we wrote in our article that social distance is a gap created by marked differences, such as cultural, socioeconomic, and linguistic, between groups of people, even if they inhabit overlapping geographic areas. The term is used to identify clinically significant differences between the life of the imagined patient, whom a healthcare institution is designed to serve, and a particular patient's actual life. This is what we wrote as the definition of social distance in the article. And I can give you examples of, as you had asked, One example of social distance is timeliness. People come from other cultures where it may take hours to get to a doctor's office. So being 10, 15, 20 minutes late is no big deal for them. But this results in a no-show and a rescheduling and possibly a dismissal from the practice for repetitive no-shows. Also, not showing up for work is worse than not showing up for a doctor's appointment. So if the boss asks you to do an extra shift, you may forego your scheduled clinic appointment. You may not have access to a phone to cancel your appointment. On the other hand, you may show up unscheduled to the health center when bad weather cancels your farm work for that particular day. This, again, is social distance. There's a gap of understanding between the needs of the patient and the needs of the health center for timeliness. One other one I can tell you, which I'm guilty of myself sometimes, is uh, a clinician, in order to better understand his new patient, asks many questions. They offer several options to choose from. They want to be a medical life coach and team up with a patient to improve health. While this is all well-intentioned, the patient may come from a cultural background in which the doctor gives you direct instruction and leaves little room for digression. He's not to be questioned as the physician. A doctor who asks too many questions in this cultural setting and gives maybe too many choices may be perceived as not knowing what he's doing or weak or very new and inexperienced. Again, this is an example of a social distance that's cultural and possibly linguistic. In your article, you talk about a pregnant migrant berry picker who has to move every couple of weeks to a new farm as as part of her job. How does that kind of mobility issue affect access to care? And what are other ways in which patients can be mobile in that sense? So I've been giving examples of social distance that did not include mobility. 
but we can look now at the factors such as mobility, which create social distance. So we have a pregnant patient, Ms. G, who's a farm worker, and will be moving from health center to health center and from farm to farm as she continues in her pregnancy. Her physician, Dr. D, has been taking care of her and knows that she will be uh, moving from the area where he is working to another area where he won't know how to contact her and won't know what kind of health services are available. Now, I've been in a situation like that myself as a primary care physician with a patient who has many complications. She's multiparous. She has advanced maternal age. She engages in daily heavy physical labor. She has issues, as I get to know her, of depression, exposure to pesticides, exposure to heat, uncertain nutritional and water intake. These, just in of themselves, are very challenging for the primary care physician trying to deal with a patient in the 7 to 15 minutes that the appointment allows. In addition to this, if you add mobility and a patient has to move from one health center to another, the complexity can be very overwhelming for the primary care physician. And often clinicians don't consider the mobility question until it's too late. and The patient either has moved or has no-showed for an appointment and cannot be found. So just as critical to our health systems, inability to adjust so that mobile patients can continue to care while on the move, we have to accommodate patients who are mobile. If we don't understand this, this creates another gap. And this is the social distance of mobility that we talk about in our article. So in that regard, you write in your article about the health network, which was developed by the Migrant Clinicians Network in response to patient feedback about the barriers they had in obtaining care when they're on the road as part of a job. How does that program work? So Health Network is a project of the Migrant Clinicians Network, where I'm the chief medical officer. Migrant Clinicians Network came about three decades ago by the frustrations of clinicians who saw mobility in their patients as a real barrier to care, such as chronic health needs, such as tuberculosis and diabetes and HIV. And so they formed this network, and part of their work included a health network which was a care management program for mobile patients. And often these were farm workers or migrants. Sometimes they were mobile patients that were not farmers. So the health network will take any patient with two conditions. One, that they be mobile, and two, that they have some health care need that needs follow-up. Health network will check in with a patient and provide comprehensive management and medical record transfers and any needed follow-up services to make sure that they can link up with care at their next location. What this requires is a clinician, such as Dr. D, to call Migrant Clinicians Network with their patient at hand and sign a consent to have the patient's medical records transferred to the Migrant Clinicians Network Health Network, and the Health Network will take it from there and basically will contact the patient as they move from health center to health center and establish care at the new health center. The patient also can be leaving the United States from home country while they're in the middle of, say, TB treatment. And Health Network will contact the clinic in the home country to make sure that tuberculosis treatment continues and is treated appropriately as it would be in the United States. So Health Network has been around now for several decades and has had great success. We've had the most success with tuberculosis and the most information from our case records including a completion rate of about 84% in the U.S. population of mobile patients compared to 87% completion of tuberculosis treatment in the non-mobile U.S. patients who are not challenged with uh, mobility as part of their health care. 
Is that a model that could work for other organizations? Can clinics and health systems either join that or create systems themselves to provide these kinds of services to mobile patients? I think this model is very viable. It has a great success rate, and clinics are welcome to join Health Network. Again, all they need is a patient who is identified as having healthcare needs that need follow-up and that they are mobile. This was established, again, by clinicians and has been growing over years and years. We've had 12,000 cases so far in the decades we've been working with Health Network, and I believe that this is something that can be adapted to other health centers as well. But we already have something that works, and so we would recommend using our health network and taking the pressure off the individual primary care clinician who is, again, faced in 7 to 15 minutes of an office appointment with the complexities of a patient that requires a great deal of follow-up and not able to use the local resources because they'll be on the move again. Finally, thinking about that primary care physician, How can individual clinicians recognize social distance when it exists and then provide effective care for their patients who are at that distance? That's a great question. I try to teach my medical students always to get a good history, especially good social history. We often, in our busy healthcare environment, ask a very brief social history that includes maybe smoking and marital status. But really, if we can get a good social history at the very beginning of our encounters, we can ask questions like, are you planning to stay in the area here or are you planning to leave? And if so, when? Are there factors that may impede care that would include transportation, food insecurities, limited housing options, these kind of things? So getting good history would be really important. And ideally, you'd have an understanding of your patient and their challenges. Now, if they stay in the same area or return to the same area in the future, they can still have access to health network. I have worked in South Central Pennsylvania for many years, and one of the great things about the health network system was that I could get my tuberculosis patients in around Gettysburg, for example, to enroll in health network. They were in their third month of a six-month treatment for tuberculosis. They were going up to upstate New York to continue fruit picking, I knew that I was not going to be able to get any more information if I did not use a health network. So I went and enrolled them in health network. They connected them to the next clinic in upstate New York. And finally, I got a report many months later that my patient had completed their tuberculosis treatment. And that was very satisfying for me because the following year, some of these patients, including this one, came back to my health center again for the fruit picking season in South Central Pennsylvania. So I had information at the very end that this patient of mine had successfully completed tuberculosis treatment and that I was able to then know that they did not need to have any further medications that involved TB and that they would also be able to continue within my clinic year after year. And I have great follow-up for the times that I did not see them in the other parts of the year. Thank you, Dr. Madar.